Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Code Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. I'm speaking today with OnFroind, co-founder and CEO at Wilco. On, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. All right. So I love that we're going to be talking about, you know, what skills do your developers really need? And for me, I, I think this is, is a fascinating journey. So you, you went to college for computer science. What, what was it you actually learned in college? Yeah, I did. So I studied uh, computer science in Tel Aviv University, where I grew up. And to be honest, it was really interesting. I loved college. I thought it was, uh, you know, computer science is one of the most fascinating things I've done. Uh, it has nothing to do with real world applications or, or what you do at an actual company. But it is interesting in its own right. Um, and you do learn a bit of coding. Um, you do learn a lot of operating system curriculum for some reason. I'm not going to write a new operating system from scratch anytime soon, but apparently that's needed. Uh, but, but that's it. Nothing else that actually prepares you for the job. And and I know that's starting to change. I mean, but back when you were there, I remember I did, I used to teach uh, a lot of Git and GitHub classes and I would teach uh, classes at like Harvard and MIT and Yale and places like that where people who were in their last year of computer science didn't know what a version control system was. Was was that pretty much your experience as well? Oh, for sure. Uh, version control was not part of the curriculum. Um, neither was working in teams in general, uh, which is, you know, something that you think is, is needed. So we did have group projects, but depending on who you were grouped with, it might've been just every person for themselves. Or maybe if, if you were really savvy, then you, uh, you used CVS or something like that to, to save your, uh, your code. Got it. Well, of course, as, yeah, it was a little while ago that you were in college. <laughs> Back before <laughs> Re- I reveal, Revealing my age here. <laughs> So uh, then I think your first job was at Applied Materials. What was the job and then what was the difference, the gap between what you learned in college and what you were actually doing at the company? 
Sure. So I was actually coming out of uh, operating system class. Like I said, for some reason, that was uh, considered an important part of the curriculum. And I get to this interview at, at Applied Materials, and for some odd reason, all of the questions are about operating systems. So I aced that interview <laughs> because everything is fresh in my mind. Um, I managed to get a, jo- get a job. And then first day on the job, I'm like, all right, I can write code. But no one around, around me is actually writing code most of the time. They're doing so many other things. Uh, they're setting up build systems or they're deploying to production. They're designing systems from scratch. They're um, brainstorming. They're investigating what's happening in production. They're doing so many things that I have no clue at all how to do and what they even are. And I'm like, I can write code. Just you know, show me the function that I need to write, and I'll be able to do that. <laughs> Right, but you didn't have any of the kind of supporting skills around you to actually help you to to engage with the team and, and ship production code. Not at all. That, to be honest, that, that first day was scary. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, wait, am I even cut out for this job? Now, what was what was that? Uh, how did you start to build those skills? What was the process of going from, you know, I can reverse a linked list to I can actually fix a production outage? Oh, I could reverse linked lists in so many different ways and so many different complexities uh, in runtimes. But um, I was kind of both fortunate and unfortunate, uh, privileged and unprivileged to join a team that was mostly dysfunctional. Um, so the, the project itself was uh, in a problematic state. It was way overdue. Some of the people who were leading that project have left the company either voluntarily or involuntarily. Uh, and I found myself without clear guidance. And I happened to be in the team that was considered to be the, or maintaining the component that was considered to be the one that is responsible for everything that's wrong with the system. Uh, and every time something went wrong in production, um, the, we were to blame. And, and the thing is, you know, this was a, a tiered architecture and we were at the very bottom of it. And I always joked uh, at the UI team, whenever they blamed me for everything happening anywhere, I told them, well, the error manifests itself in the UI. So it must be your team that's responsible for, <laughs> for what's wrong here, right? <laughs> uh, but they blamed me for everything. And because this was a somewhat dysfunctioning team, I found myself touching production and being exposed to outages and having to deal with emergencies all the time. And that meant that those skills were developing really quickly for me. And within a year, I opened up a gap you know, for those skills compared to anyone else who was studying with me, regardless of you know, whether they were smarter than me or more intelligent than me um, or more industri- industrious than me. It didn't matter at all. Uh, I knew production better than anyone in my class. However, because you were getting the reps in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, that 10,000 uh, hour thing, right? right. Um, on the other hand, because it was a dysfunctioning team, I knew nothing about uh, good communication, um, you know, both intra team and, and inter team. Uh, I didn't know how to handle stakeholders the right way because all I knew was to push back because everything was, you know, <laughs> a dumpster fire all the time. Um, <laughs> So there were some skills that, w- that I was really ahead in and some skills that I was really behind. 
So then when you moved to Handy as a VP of engineering there, um, you, you were presumably seeing this from a different side, which is now you were bringing new people into your team and you had to, to fix their skills. So what was that like and what was the size and the composition of the team when you, when you started at Handy? Yeah, sure. So just to, to note, we are jumping seven years into the future between Applied Materials and Handy, but that's fine. Um, so when I joined Handy, uh, I, I had just moved to New York about a year prior to that, coming from Israel. Um, I was starting to build out my network. And by the way, if you're building out your network in New York, Peter is the person to speak to because he I think he introduced me to everyone there. Um, <clears throat> we didn't have a strong engineering brand just yet. Uh, we raised a nice seed, but it wasn't, you know, eye-popping figures that could uh, basically mean we can hire anyone we want. So I had to compromise on something. I was building the team mostly based on junior people. And I said, I'm going to hire the best and brightest from the best schools, uh, but without any experience. Mm -hmm. And for some odd reason, I forgot my first day at Applied Materials, maybe because it was seven years. And... I forgot that those people don't actually know how to work. They're super smart. They can write amazing code as long as you point them at the function they need to deal with and the code they need to write. Um, and we were a small team. The system was in production practically from day one. And now you have to deal with customers and you have to deal with uh, things that are happening. And you know what's the best practice when you you know, realize that there is some data inconsistency and you need to edit the database in production. What do you do? Uh, and none of them knew it. And luckily, you know, we didn't have to uh, restore backups too often, uh, but uh, but we did have to do it once or twice. <laughs> Now, I believe that in terms of like the that kind of upskilling challenge, that you actually reached out to the team over at Flatiron School back then? Yeah, I reached out to a few boot camps and I said, I have this amazing group of talented people and I want to upskill them. I want to give them more hands-on experience because they're super smart. They don't need to write better code. They do an amazing job at that. Um, so why don't we do some sort of evening school where we expose them to simulations of things that happen in real life? And that way we can accelerate their progression and hopefully within months they can gain the experience of years now this was back in 2013 or so correct was yes okay. 2013 i think it was probably towards the end of 2013 and the team at flatiron school loved it um at least the american version of loved it which is we're not going to do it uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh awesome come uh, back in five years when we have more time Exactly. But Avi said, you know, this is great. If you want to quit Handy and come do it for us full time, I think it's an awesome idea. Let's do it. And we'll support you in every way we can, but we're not going to do it ourselves. You know, we focus on zero to one. We've got our hands full with that. We can do one to a hundred uh, anytime soon. You know, very similar to the response I got from other boot camps as well. But I also realized that waiting for real world experiences is not a scalable approach to upskilling engineers. You know, A, it's very slow. It's going to take you years to gain the initial experience. And after that, it's even slower because the more experience you have, the less you get exposed to new types of scenarios, right? Because if you've seen everything in your domain, 
and all you're doing is your domain, you're not seeing anything new. So it's really slow to get ahead. Um, it's very error prone. You know, I mentioned having to restore database backups, but we've had worse thing happen. And, and I'm sure I'm you know, not breaking news to anyone here. Everyone has seen production outages, even at the biggest companies uh, that you can think of, even when the workflow is designed to avoid outages, let alone in a startup where the workflow is actually designed for velocity rather than for uh, robustness. Um, so people make mistakes, they cause catastrophes. Uh, so that's the second uh, con of learning on the job or gaining experience on the job. And the third is that it doesn't provide equal opportunity because you and I could be starting at the same time, same company. You're way more talented than me. We know that. Uh, but then I get to a team kind of like my applied materials team where I get access to production all day long. And maybe it's even a well-functioning team and I get amazing mentors. I'll very quickly open up a gap that's going to be practically impossible for you to close despite you being more uh, talented than me. And if we look at underrepresented groups, they already have an experience gap and they tend to get to teams that don't actually allow them to close it. That makes a lot of sense. So, so after Handy, so Handy was, you know, it was a venture back company and it was growing, but then you kind of went from the frying pan into the fire with WeWork. How big was the, the company and the engineering team when you first joined WeWork? So if I remember correctly, my employee idea at WeWork was 114. Um, <clears throat> and if you, um, if you account for people who've left, then, you know, the, the team was probably less than 100 people. Um, the engineering team was nine people. And the good news is that most of it was senior, the good and bad news. Um, so, you know, they knew how to handle production. They knew the right workflows or right, right for the, for the, uh, requirements. Um, they knew how to communicate with stakeholders. They knew how to design systems from scratch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't really scale a team of seniors, right? Uh, they're super expensive. They're hard to come by, especially in New York, by the way. Um, you know, so at least in, if you're in the Bay Area, uh, you had people with 20 years of experience uh, doing startups throughout that time. But in New York, uh, in 2014, you know, most people were coming from Bloomberg or, or one of the banks, right? right. Uh, or maybe from Fog Creek. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of startup activity happening there. So you realize that you have to, uh, you, in order to scale the team, you have to go more junior as well and hire those inexperienced people. And all of a sudden, you're in the same bind. So you get people who can mentor, and you know maybe you build a nice pyramid where a very senior person can mentor three people, and they can mentor each of them three people, and that's great, and it's a nice tree and everything. But you still, you know, still you're going to have the the bottom layer, bottom in terms of years experience. Uh, the bottom layer is going to be the biggest by far, right? And then you run into the limitations of mentoring. The challenge that many engineers want to be with computers, not people, which is why they joined and became a computer engineer in the first place. And the fact that you can only have a certain ratio. I mean, because it, it slows your your productivity in terms of your seniors who are now spending all exactly. their time teaching the juniors rather than necessarily shipping code themselves. So there, which... there was one person at WeWork, actually. I, I don't think 
most of his time there, I don't think he wrote any production code at all because he spent most of his time with uh, less experienced developers helping them out. He was so good at it, by the way, that he became the perfect CTO for Wilco. Nice. So, so I got to ask, uh, what, what, what is Wilco? <laughs> so Wilco, um, you know, going back to everything we said up until now and, and how gaining experience on the job is, is so hard. And going back to my suggestion to Flatiron about having this evening school where people get exposed to simulations of, of real world events, we said, well, why don't we do it in a scalable approach? Why don't we give people the ability to join a fantasy company and have that fantasy company include the complexity that you expect to find in a real company? So your production system is going to have logging and monitoring and analytics and load balancing and a real data set, not just five records in a single table that you know never run into any uh, por- any sort of performance problem or data legacy problem or anything like that. Um, and then we also included the biggest complexity of all in a company, uh, which I'm sure you can guess what that is. Please let us know. <laughs> Humans, <laughs> always the biggest complexity of, of any system. Um, so humans, you have colleagues and stakeholders and product managers and team leads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that, you go on quests and a quest could be, Hey, Peter, we have a performance problem in production. Please figure out what happened. What's the root cause? What's the extent of the damage? Fix it and communicate it to stakeholders. Now, the idea is not fix it because you can learn how to fix it in college. You can learn how to fix it at an online course. But how do you even know that something's wrong in production? And what do you do once you've found out in order to investigate where the problem is? Once you've isolated it, when do you go for a quick and dirty fix? And when do you go for something more meaningful? Uh, How do you ensure that lessons are learned and implemented All of these things, the only real way to gain them today is on the job. And that's the problem we're trying to solve. So have you looked at other domains other than software engineering when you you were trying to come up with a a way to train engineers more effectively? Yeah, so it's really cool. You you know, you get uh, get to see how different domains behave differently. But one of the biggest inspiration points for us from day one, and actually one of the reasons we're named Wilco, is how pilots gain experience or exercise uh, at what they do. So regardless of how many hours of flight you have during a month or how many years of experience you have, you still have to go through the simulator Mm -hmm. because a real flight is great, but it actually, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the more experience you have, the less, you know, exposure you have to to, uh, new scenarios, a seasoned pilot doesn't actually get to experience new things in most flights. But then every now and then you need to land on the Hudson. And the only way to prepare for that is the simulator. I, I would be a little frustrated if, you know, if I'm taking a Delta back from Austin, they're like, hey, we haven't tried this for a while. So we're just going to land on a river and just, just make sure we still have the jobs. Exactly. So, uh, you know, flight simulators were, were, uh, were a great inspiration for us. Another, um, another thing we looked at is a whole field called CTA, Uh, cognitive task analysis. Mm -hmm. And this was done in several domains. And the point being is that you get those domains where people with experience are like gods. You know, everyone is waiting to hear what they have to say and they don't know how to teach what they do. 
So <clears throat> a great example of that was firefighters. Uh, one of the one of the uh, research uh, papers that we looked at was about firefighters. And, you know, when you study, you study all the theory, how fires develop and what's needed uh, for a fire to sustain itself or, you know, what are the, what do you need to take out for it to, uh, to not sustain itself? Um, you learn a lot of theory, but then you get to your first incident and you don't know what to do. But then if you take a, a, a firefighter with 20 years of experience and you ask them, so what do you do once you get to an incident, they have no idea how to answer that question, yet they do an amazing job once they're there. So what CTA does is they've developed very structured ways of asking questions that eventually lead to scenario-based learning. So they know what to ask those seasoned firefighters and eventually build curriculums based on that. Nice. Now, when you look at these scenarios, what about the stack? Because obviously, if companies are working with very different environments, monolith, microservices, observability tools, they do or don't have feature flagging. How do you create a stack that is real world enough without having 1,700 different versions of the, the system? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and not 1,700, but we do have several versions of the system. Uh, but we also developed a domain-specific language to write quests so that we don't actually need to write every quest for every uh, every combination of front-end, back-end, database, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we also think that the stack doesn't have to exactly mimic your stack because if you're a developer with 20 years of experience and I'm interviewing you for a job, most chances are those 20 years have not been in the exact stack that I want you to be using at our company, right? Yet, I would still prefer you over someone who has you know, two months of experience, but exactly with the right stack. Um, so we think that those skills, especially since our focus is not code writing, it's all the skills around it. We think that the actual stack that you're working in is not as important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not as important as people might think. And it's kind of like if you and I were to uh, go and, and start surfing waves and you would learn that in English and I would learn in Hebrew, eventually we'll develop the same skill. It's not as if I'm learning to surf in Hebrew. I'm learning to surf. It's just that the, the class is in Hebrew. So we look at it as kind of the same way. When you practice on Wilco, you might be practicing with javascript or with ruby or you might be practicing with a sql database or a nosql um, but eventually the the understanding of uh, how do i uh, design a component from scratch or how do i um, investigate something in production how do i communicate with my team members those don't tend to change that much from stack to stack that makes perfect sense. And then at the end of a quest, like what happens? Is there like an after action report? Is there is there a human retrospective? How do you ensure that they're, that that learnings that lessons are learned from the experience? Well, first of all, I'd like to think that there is a huge rush of dopamine to the brain <laughs> once you finish the quest, but you know that that remains to be seen. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but when you finish a quest, first of all. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me, what, what's going to happen if people cheat? It's an open system. Anyone can see other people's solutions. They can just copy them. 
Or what if I, you know, we have automated checks uh, in, in several places. What if I cheat and find something that's going to beat the automated test? And to be honest, you know, power to you if you do that. Because let's go back to that performance problem scenario that I mentioned earlier. So you've managed to learn or at least to practice setting a performance baseline using a benchmarking tool. Um, and you've investigated the problem and you got to a point where your code is running significantly faster and all of the tests are running. So you know that you're not supposed to see any regression and you've done all of these things and so many more, yet you managed to cheat and the code fix wasn't actually uh, a code, you know, a real code fix. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Who cares that you didn't do that? So I I still think, you, you know, you've gained so much, uh, through this scenario, but we also have, um, you know, every quest has an existing player from the past who's kind of uh, has their recommended solution that you can check out. And, you know, you can see this is what that person did. And, and you know, maybe I can learn a thing or two, or maybe actually I think mine is better. And, and um, I'm, I'm very happy with what I did. Um, or maybe it's just different, you know, you don't always need to do the same thing. And there are various ways to, 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 to do a lot of things in software engineering. Um, we also sometimes can tell you, you know, this is great, uh, but this is what we've picked up in the review, uh, which we suggest that you do differently. We've actually had twice within Wilco that new engineers who joined got an automated review with a comment and then took that comment and changed the Wilco code base accordingly. <laughs> and it happened twice. Now, I'm pretty sure it happens with other companies as well. We just don't know because, you know, we don't see it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, on unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks so much for, for taking really? the time to share your experiences. That, that, that was so much fun. That was quick. 